people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. mystery bill i have seen one or two things in my life never anything like this you know there's no way on earth that you're going to leave here tonight without taking me with you they did a bad bad thing 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 Suppose I said that all of that was fake. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Damn it, Mike. I've known you how long, and you still won't give me the second password already? Also with us in the booth is Mr. Matthew Asprey-Gear. Okay, Mike. I'm a doctor. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are revisiting a movie we talked about 10 years ago, Eyes Wide Shut. It is the final film from director Stanley Kubrick, and we are checking in on the film some 23 years after its release. We'll be discussing the film, an interesting fan edit of the movie, and a 2019 book about the film from authors Robert P. Kolker and Nathan Abrams. And of course, we will be spoiling this film as we go along. With this one, I recommend you definitely watch the movie, go back, listen to our first episode, and then come on back for this second part of a very protracted conversation. So, Matthew, before we start off, give me a little bit of your background on the film. When did you first see it, and what were your thoughts at the time? Well, I saw this in the cinema when it first came out uh, in 1999, and there was a lot of hype about the film i was already a big kubrick fan so and of course you know he died so suddenly before the film was released so there was a lot of conversation going on around the movie so i went to see it at the cinema i must admit by that point with some apprehension because prior to going to see it i had seen a clip on tv and this kind of variety show on television had shown the scene where tom cruise is kind of facing this sinister tribunal and I must admit, when I first saw that scene, I, I almost couldn't believe how silly this seemed. Then maybe that was just taken out of context. But uh, yeah, I guess it makes a lot more sense in the context of the movie. I was, I think, very engrossed in the film. Maybe at the time, a little disappointed. Didn't see it really at the 
in the upper tier of Kubrick's work. So that's 23 years ago. And what do you think about it now? I mean, coming back to it, it had actually been more than two. I mean, I think I hadn't seen it in, I mean, since I originally uh, saw it in the cinema. So it would have been more than 20 years. And the one thing that really surprised me was how much of the film I really remembered it imprinted itself in my memory really significantly. So it wasn't like going back to a film that I'd totally forgotten and being uh, surprised. Uh, it was, I think, yeah, I mean, every frame of the film bears Kubrick's mastery as a director. It's so compelling, although I do think it's a pretty flawed movie in many ways as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a good film to come back to. I think it it really rewards uh, rewatchings. So, yeah, that's where I'm at at this point. You know what's interesting is uh, this morning I didn't have a lot of time before we recorded, but I wanted to go back and listen to the previous episode. So I listened to about the first hour of the previous episode we did ten years ago. A lot of the things that I talk about in there still holds up for me in terms of my initial reaction and then understanding it better now. You know, when I first saw it in '99, I was 21, and I had little to no experience with relationships outside of like viewing my parents' marriage disintegrate and, and everything else around me. So just just like had no personal experience for sexual jealousy and marriage and long-term relationships. And what what I really think that that Kubrick talks about in the film is 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 this concept of desire and sort of a more open or different sexuality versus domesticity and, and sort of what is that tension between desire and domesticity and didn't really get that. I really didn't understand it. So when I was 21, I remember seeing it and going, it's interesting, but I, you know, I just didn't hit me like the other work that he had done. I think with age and having experience in relationships, being married, you know, and things like that, it, it resonates a bit more. And to me, it starts to feel a bit more like with age, not so much an American film. It feels more like, like a European art film. It feels times like something that, and, and I'm having trouble kind of coming up with, with directors off the top of my head, but you know, there's a lot of French directors, Bergman, you know, scenes from a marriage, things like that. I mean, it really kind of, it feels like Kubrick's trying to do something like that in a way. I agree that it is flawed. The, the full release edit and this this recut that that we're going to talk about i think is really interesting because of what it leaves in and what it leaves out obviously but in, in how that kind of shapes those ideas i was talking about uh, around desire domesticity and and uh, sexual jealousy but overall i you know it's to me as i've said before you know a bad stanley kubrick film is better than most people's you know best films so i i, I still have a, a fondness for it even if it is not top level for me among his stuff. When I came into the Eyes Wide Shut episode we did 10 years ago, I really disliked the film. But then by watching it over and over and over again for that episode, I grew to like it. And now it's one of the films. It's not one. Well, there's very few Kubrick films that I just pop on for fun other than maybe The Killing. But otherwise, most of them are a little bit of a, I don't want to say a chore to get through, but you have to make a choice if you're going to watch a Kubrick film. It's not just like light entertainment kind of stuff. But I have to say, I think of this film a lot more fondly than I did at the time. I thought that when it came out in 99, it was a disaster. And now watching it again, I'm like, 
all right, I can really see how this fits into his work. And then I have to say, uh, reading the, the book about Eyes Wide Shut, they really do a great job of tying it into his previous work and especially talking about how many times he tried to make this film and just that it took so long to finally come to fruition. And it's like, okay, I can see now how other movies that he was working on either play into this or how this played into that, how the Schnitzler story played into these other films. And the authors really make a good comparison between Lolita and Eyes Wide Shut. I guess the whole idea of the sexual desire and the forbidden nature and all these kind of things plays well together. I guess it would be a good Kubrick double feature of these two movies back to back. You mentioned this idea of art house sensibility and that it feels like a European film. I could see maybe like a Max Ophels directing something like this. And I had forgotten that he directed LeBron, which was another Schnitzler work. So I always forget just how much Schnitzler was adapted and contributed to films overall. I mean, he, there are tons of films that are accredited to Schnitzler and this is just one version actually of Trom Naval, which was the, the book that was the film was based on. And as the years have gone by, it's become easier and easier, not super easy, but pretty easy to find other versions of Trom Naval as films. So now you can start to compare what other directors were bringing to this versus what Kubrick brings to it. So it's that's always a fascinating thing for me to be able to compare and contrast different versions of the same narrative. That'll become even more the case now, since I think this year in the US, the novel fell into the public domain. So anyone can make a, uh, a film of this story or any type of adaptation now. Watch out. They're going to be tearing up the box office with all these new versions of Trom Naval. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. So you mentioned the fan edit. I mentioned it as well. I was unaware of this until I was having a conversation actually with our mutual friend, Chris Gore, who had mentioned this website called Eyes Wide Cut. And there was a lot of controversy. Uh, Matthew, you mentioned this whole idea of, was this the version that Kubrick wanted released? Is this the final film? Because we all know that Kubrick... I mean, we talked about this on the Shining episode. We talked about it on the as-yet-to-be-released 2001 A Space Odyssey episode. He would release things theatrically and then go in and cut them. So the end of The Shining, a lot of stuff, especially when it came to Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So the version that was being shown at different events was that going to be the final one? And a lot of people say no, that he probably would have cut a little bit more. So a fan editor took it upon themselves to try to follow some of the notes and follow along with Trom Naval and really shape it into at least a shorter version. I don't know if it's a better version, but it's definitely a shorter version. I think it's, what, just over two hours as opposed to two hours and 49 minutes. And now I'm to the point, though, where I don't know if I can separate the new cut versus what I watched so many times when we were talking about this originally. If Die Hard is a Christmas movie, then Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. It's totally a Christmas movie. 
I had this tendency for several years to try and watch it around Christmas time. I don't know why, but I would. So I think the last time I did that may have been during COVID lockdown or maybe right before. So I hadn't seen it maybe about three years or so, but but agreeing with you, Matt, there's, there's so much of it that's sort of imprinted in my head that I just remember. And so I watched the fan edit and I took notes and then I watched this week the international directors, you know, the, the cut without the masking, you know, of the orgy scene. And so I watched that and then I have been comparing the two in my head. And then I went to the page, the eyes wide cut page, where he explains all the edits that he made and why he made the edits. So what I really like in the fan edit is in the beginning, and, and I understand why Kubrick does it, where he does the establishing and, you know, there's Nicole Kidman's ass basically opens the film and and all of that and the domesticity of them you know where's my wallets and all of this stuff is is to kind of set up this tension that there's there's kind of a disconnect between them and then they go to the party and then they get separated and they do their thing and i like the way that he sets it up where they're basically we know they're together but they're on different tracks what he ends up doing through the edit is as you were saying kind of streamline it but i think he also kind of takes out some of the various points that Kubrick is making, I think, in some of the various scenes about different kinds of sexual, for lack of a better term, and I'm going to use quotes, deviancy or desire or choice or the things like that that could blow up domestic happiness. And what this fan edit does is it really compresses it into this question of 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 the desire and of the of the jealousy and the disconnect between them more than sort of what's going on in the outside world as much if that makes any sense i don't i don't know if you saw the same but that's really what i got out of that edit and i think that because of that he was able to pull i don't know it was like 30 was it like 30 minutes out of this thing or something and does move a lot leaner and cleaner in that way i mean you could have had sydney pollock in for i think a day on this edit you know versus the kubrick one you know I'm sure it took more than a day. <laughs> no, I just meant if if the if the fan edit script was was the final, it's like he's not really in it. Like that whole pool table scene doesn't even exist. Well, Kubrick would have probably taken about 100 days to do it anyway. But for me, the best performance in this movie is Sidney Pollack. I think he's so good in this role. And so losing nearly everything that wound up in the theatrical release of the film with Sidney Pollack... Uh, it really does change the movie that we have. I mean, it's uh, in some ways, it seems that the fan edit is trying to aim for more ambiguity about things. But then again, I don't know necessarily that what is what was in the film as it was originally released answered more questions than it raised. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the objective of the fan edit because it's presented as if well, Kubrick died very suddenly and based on his previous practice with The Shining, as you said, Mike, and so on, he would keep tinkering with the movie up even sometimes beyond the release date. But for me, this, and I'm not against fan edits, but this does feel like something more than merely trying to tinker with the cut as released. It seems like an attempt to, yeah, remake the film and it does illustrate how malleable a movie is if you remove one element how it can so much how it can transform the meaning or the interpretation of the film so i'm quite i'm not quite convinced really this is an attempt to sort of in the way that sometimes you know with orson wells like touch of evil they tried to okay well wells left some notes and we're just going to try to just the version we have the 
the versions we have and try to put them into the form Wells intended. This is, I mean, I don't know to what extent we know what Kubrick would have done. Maybe he didn't know at that point. But um, it seems to me this is a bigger type of re-edit than just merely trying to guess what Kubrick would have done if he had lived a bit longer. But what do you guys think about that? I don't think it changes the thematics too much. I mean, I think it removes some of, like I was saying, this other desire pieces that Kubrick keeps bringing up with different scenes. I mean, it's definitely not this Sid Sheinberg cut of Brazil. You know, it's <laughs> love conquers all now. You know, everything's everything's great in the end. But it didn't shift it a ton for me. I I'm, And I'm trying to figure, you know, and, and maybe we can talk about, you know, what you think, Mike, and, and kind of where you where you feel it kind of lays. When it came to say like The Shining, they chopped out a, a little chunk at the end, and I feel like was there a chunk that you could take out of Eyes Wide Shut to make it better or different? Possibly, but I can't think of one particular scene where I'm just like, oh yeah, that that doesn't really fit or that rings false to me. And yeah, this fan edit is so going in and just removing little pieces here and there that add up to a lot more to the point where it's just like, why are you doing this? Why are you removing all of these establishing shots? Like, I think there's, he removed like 10 out of 28 establishing shots. And I'm like, why, why do we have to remove these? It just, it feels very, uh, the choices that are made to cut this down. And it's like, is it just for pacing? Is that what we're doing here? Because even in the notes, when he talks about what he was cutting, it's like, you know, oh, well, this might actually play into this thing later on in the film. And I'm like, so you're robbing us of this? Like his initial conversation with Nick Nightingale, the lounge singer that plays blindfolded at the orgy scene later on. And when he meets him at the bar and it's like, oh, you made it. And it's like, well, you know, I cut that earlier scene of Nick Nightingale. So maybe you could interpret this. Oh, you made it as an earlier invitation. I'm like, why not just show the earlier scene? Why is the introduction of Nick Nightingale something that's objective? Why do you have to just take him out of here at all? It just yeah, it feels almost random with some of these decisions. And in looking at the notes, because there is a page there and it says there were 14 establishing shots of New York City. And it says, I cut seven of the still ones, three of the moving ones, 10 total out of 28. And he goes here, it says they had served very little narrative or emotional purpose other than to orientate the audience as we're in New York. So that was his explanation. I mean, if you had the examples in previous Kubrick films where he had in his rough cut put a lot of establishing shots and then started to trim them out. Okay, maybe that would be more justifiable. But uh, yeah, I mean, as an establishing shot is an establishing shot and that's okay. It's also a kind of rhythmical thing. It gives you a pause between scenes. And I will say, I mean, in, in Kubrick's, oh, I don't know if we can call it Kubrick's version, but in the version that was released in 99, at least outside the United States, I never feel that there was a pacing problem or that anything even though it's a slow paced film it's not that doesn't really feel to me anything too extraneous uh, like as you said mike it's difficult to think what really needed to come out um, because the film was dragging the other thing that i started to realize on this more critical watch like i said 10 years later after the critical watch i did before and i don't think i remember talking about this as much on the first episode 
uh, a little bit was kind of the mirroring motifs that you have these events that happen and then they happen again in a different context. So you can say, okay, the Christmas party and the orgy scene, you can say, you know, there, there are these different things that kind of reference back to each other, even though they're in different places, there may be different people there, but this builds on this kind of idea of repetition and repetition being kind of within the dream state I guess you could say, because the thing that he does outside of the black and white fantasy in Bill's head of his wife with the naval officer, there's no understanding that any of this is a dream, that that maybe they're sleeping and this is just all in his head or this is all in his wife's head or this is some sort of combined dream. There's there's not even, you know, to, you know, everybody get your shots ready because I'm going to reference him. You know, there's not even that waking up in the dream of another person's dream like Bunuel does, or when, you know, sometimes Bunuel will hit you in the ribs to get your attention that way with, with dream sequence stuff. But there's not even that aspect. The only thing I can think of is that some of the establishing shots maybe help us set a sense of, of reality, but even is that real? So I don't know. Like, I've always kind of questioned this film is, does it even take place at all? Outside of someone's head. The mask at the end being on the pillow is like, oh shit, does she know? Is this real? I mean, it throws the whole movie into question and totally agree with the whole idea of the the mirroring of things. I mean, you've got the flirtation between Alice and Sandor at the party, and this kind of shows that she is flirtatious and so sets up that jealousy and everything. So why cut that. I mean, I think that that conversation that they have is kind of delightful in this whole idea of... Did you ever read the Latin poet Ovid on the art of love? Didn't he wind up all by himself crying his eyes out in some place with a very bad climate? <laughs> but he also had a good time first. A very good time. Yeah, just like Bill's trying to look for a, a good time. This conversation lends itself to another conversation or to a larger theme. It feels loose when you, I, I think that's the thing is that the film, I think you actually have to watch it more than once. A lot of Kubrick films or just a lot of films in general. It's like you can watch it once and you okay, got everything. And for me, this one seems to have, probably just me i'm not picking up on everything every time i see it but there's there's just these aspects that you're like oh okay now i get it you know and there's certain things like that you know like you were talking about with alice it's like i i just realized that she's always either with bill you know the only time we ever see her is by herself outside of the house is is in that scene you know she's always either with him or she's in the house taking care of the kid or wait you know when are you coming home like what's going on you know so there's always this separateness that's in there and and everything as well so anyhow it, there's just things that I, I keep picking up on and like i said i think the film requires multiple viewings in order to get it the question is is does the average person that wants to watch this thing would they be willing to do that i mean we're we're obviously the exception well maybe not in in 1999 because it did seem to be pretty generally dismissed as a minor work but uh now it's kind of more compelling i think to keep coming back to this but on on the point you had uh rob about the mirroring 
I, I also saw it this time. Oh, you know, when he goes to, to visit uh, a woman whose father's just died and that direct that takes place directly after the confession that Nicole Kidman's character gives about her desire for this guy, this uh, naval officer she'd run away from her family to join. And then we have a kind of comic replaying of that scenario with this woman's desire for Tom Cruise and her willingness, it seems, to leave her boyfriend who's just about to knock on the door to uh, to be with him. She says she even wants to live in the city just so that she'll be near him even if she never sees him again. It's kind of obsessive desire so i would say kubrick really carefully structured this movie and even if at first uh there seems to be a kind of almost like not that's not plotless because he is on a quest but he does sort of drift from adventure to adventure through this night i wouldn't be too quick to jump to conclusions that any of that is arbitrary i think it's all very carefully structured uh with repetitions and so on so that again makes this this uh fan edit pretty questionable uh, it really does transform the film you know, you were talking about the mary and carl scene is that it almost beyond the, what you were talking about the sexual jealousy the way that kubrick frames how bill's character walks into the room and then carl shows up and does the exact same motion and they kind of look alike thomas gibson really looks like tom cruise in this movie he's a bit taller though who isn't but I really get the feeling that it's the same kind of thing where Marion character is mirroring Alice to a certain extent and going, well, he's a professional man and I'm expected to do this. And this is, this is what's been laid out for me. This is, you know, what I should want as, as a woman. And then there's also when we get further in, and I think part of this is also brought up in, in the Christmas scene, but becomes very uh, prominent, I think, once we get to the orgy scene, which I wasn't picking up the first time I saw it. And I think, Matt, I often say this to my relatives and friends who are over in the UK and things like that. I think Europeans and, and specifically folks from the UK have a better understanding of class than Americans do, because Americans like to believe that there is no such thing. And that we're all equal and we can all rise and fall together and all of this stuff, you know, and watching this film again, I realized that there's a lot of things in there about how he's a doctor and she's a former art curator and they live in a really nice apartment, but they're still not Ziegler. They're still not that high echelon. You're still the working people. There's still this divide and there's a thing that the upper level gets to have. And there's a thing that you get to have. And there is, you know, because they go to that party and it's like, do you know anyone here? It's like not outside of Ziegler. No, I don't know any of these people. So definitely get the feeling that there is a definite divide. There's a chasm between these folks and what they're allowed to do, or at least our perception of what they're allowed to do because they have that class division. And maybe that's an inheritance from the original novella, this, you know, which is a, a Viennese no novella from uh, the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, the, the doctor character and his wife are sort of upper middle class, very well off, as he says, but it's not the same. You're right, as uh, this kind of aristocracy who are getting up to this this stuff. But just to come back to the original perception of the film when this came out in 99, so much of the discussion was around the so-called orgy sequence. I'm kind of curious, yeah, how that reads today 
because maybe that was one aspect of the film which I looked at a bit differently with the passage of time. I mean, I guess, and it's not only me this occurred to, other people have been talking about how in the age of Jeffrey Epstein and everything, this does have a different kind of resonance. But I also feel there's an element to Kubrick's depiction of this, which is a bit maybe naive. I'm kind of a bit undecided how to respond to it. So I'm kind of curious what you think about it. I look at the orgy scene as as almost like paintings because outside of the people that are actually having sex in that moment, no one's moving. They're just staring at them. Tableau vivance. So that adds this kind of weirdness to it or dream-like quality where each room that they go into, it's basically only one or two couples or a couple of, you know, maybe three people. And they're the only ones who are moving. They're the only ones who are doing anything. And, you know, I'm, I'll show my cards. There used to be here in, in the Detroit area, there used to be a, well, it's still around. It's a Russian bathhouse that's called the Schwitz. And they used to have couples nights on Saturday. This was years ago. So I would go with my wife or with girlfriends or whatever. And it was well known that this was like a swingers thing. Now, granted, there were people that would stand around and watch other people have sex and things like that. But it, it wasn't like that. <laughs> you know, like there were people moving around and having drinks and talking among themselves. Yeah, there might be people over there doing stuff, but it wasn't like this. Everyone's kind of like staring at them and obviously with the masks and everything. And then again, there, there's a piece. And I don't know if it was a bad print I saw originally or I just it just didn't register. But one of the last pieces of that orgy scene is one couple that's having sex and they're having sex on the back of someone. Must be the help or something. So again, like I looked at that and go, you know what that reminds me of was blood sucking freaks of all things, you know, where that there's the whole thing with using people as furniture and tables and things like that. So the idea again, that it's like, oh, you're the help. So you're just a table. But from what you were saying about kind of this Jeffrey Epstein and, and things like that, I think that there's always been, I mean, I remember when, when this came out and then a few years later, Matter of fact, a year later, George Bush was elected here in 2000 in, in the U.S. There was all of this discussion around, oh, well, he was in Yale, he was in Skull and Bones. And of course, Skull and Bones have these, you know, crazy initiations on the Yale campus, which includes, you know, sex orgies and, and all of this stuff. So there's always been this kind of thing. I mean, even if you go back into the founding fathers of America, I mean, Ben Franklin was part of what was called the Hellfire Club, Sir Francis Dashwood and, and all of that. So there was all of... The aristocrats in every society have always kind of had something like this, or it's always been whispered about in some way. Or Madison Cawthorn just comes out and says, hey, there's cocaine orgies for the exactly. GLP. Let's exactly. go. So I think it plays into this. Again, we were talking about this class division where the working class people know very well that if you had that much free time, it would be like Bacchanals every every weekend for you, probably. Because what else are you going to do but spend your money and, mm -hmm. and have your servants take care of your needs? The upper class in England go to the cricket. I was thinking of the Derby with the large hats and all that as well. So, <laughs> I just wonder if, uh, you know, as a vision of debauchery, of the debaucherous upper class, to what extent this is, I mean, Kubrick went for this extremely stylized representation of this. And I mean, I'm not even sure anything that they're doing at the party was illegal in the old state. I don't know. For an event that's supposed to be so exclusive and clandestine i'm uh, i don't know it's it's not really that crazy yeah it's like the most chaste orgy you'll ever go to 
And that whole thing with the the the, the masked models slowly kissing mask to mask and all that stuff, it's so stylized. It's, I'm still not quite sure what to think about the decisions Kubrick made in, in represent, representing that. If you want to talk about aristocrats getting debauched, I mean, we can always talk about my favorite children's programming, which is Solo. I mean, that's a debauched orgy. That makes Eyes Wide Shut look like Mr. Rogers. I mean, it's just children. I mean, it literally is children's programming. If you want to compare those two kind of orgies and in the way that, you know, the, the debauched libertines in in Pasolini's film compare to, to what Kubrick was doing. Absolutely. Like I said, I, to me, it's stylized. And that's another reason why it's like this doesn't live in reality. I think it is all a projection of, of his head. It's all a projection of oh, well, they have all this money and they've got all of this stuff, so of course they probably are up to something. And I think that's what got me the very first time I watched the film was how much of a loser Bill is. And just this whole idea of him trying to get laid for an entire night and never being able to do it. Even when he goes to an orgy, he still can't get it wet. And it's just like, come on, you know, like there's the scene with Domino, there's the the stuff at the costume shop, you know, just so many times where he has these opportunities and he just never takes it. So I, I can see that orgy being his idea of what an orgy is, just people having sex, wearing masks and high heels and butt floss. And it's just like, okay, that seems like very low stakes, Bill. I look at it. And again, this, the, like you were saying, he goes through the whole night and can never get satiated. Which then goes back to get ready to drink again, discreet charm, where it's like you've got these people who are constantly trying to eat or have sex and they keep getting interrupted. And that's one of the things that I also noted in here is this repetition of, oh, something for Mr. Zickler, you know, oh, pardon me. Can I can I ha take him for a, for a minute? There's always this thing where someone's coming and taking someone away from the scene. It's very deliberate. And it's like he wants you to realize that this is happening over and over. You know, we're going to take you out of the scene. We're going to go over here and do something else. Yeah, because everybody Dr. Bill meets wants to sleep with him, and then he never gets there. I go from really disliking this movie to now being a defender when I see someone trying to change it. It was put together very well, and I don't see all of these little changes happening. And really, at the end of the day, I'm just like, and actually kind of comes together pretty darn well. There was a real, obviously it's Kubrick, so there's a real intelligence behind all of this. So all of these little, you know, Lego pieces, these Jenga pieces, the whole thing's going to fall if you start fucking around with it. I like fan edits a lot of times, but this one just feels like someone thinking they know better. And it's like, I don't, I don't really see that. I don't see you being able to top the master on this one. It's a little bit like the Magnificent Ambersons cut of Eyes Wide Shut. So let's cut out all the, the stuff that's not totally central to moving the plot ahead. At least we don't have a, a reshot ending for this one, I guess. Ambersons is so, this shot at the beginning is mirrored by this shot at the end. This one to this one, this one to this one. And as you get closer, you come to the apex, everything turns, and then you're suddenly you know, seeing everything play out in reverse. This movie, yeah, it's got those echoes. It's not necessarily as linear as, as that, but yeah, you start messing around and suddenly the whole shape that this film has is is kind of maligned. The weaknesses of this film, to me, are not really in the shape of it, in the, the rhythms of it, in what scenes are in the movie. 
Uh, if there are flaws, there are more, I would say, to do with performance than anything. And that's not something that you can just tweak by chopping some frames out. I mean, it's it's more built into the film, more so than just something you can chop out. I would like to have you two argue with each other. And I'm and I'm and, and, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to do that right now. I was listening to the first episode, Mike, and you talked about how much you didn't like Sidney Pollock. And you thought that, eh. Okay, there we go. And now, Matt, you love Sidney Pollock in here. Let's let's have at it, boys. I like his character, and I definitely feel that his character is very necessary. I mean, he is the Mephistopheles of this piece. I just felt that Pollock was doing he was doing a Keitel impersonation is what it sounded like to me. And I know that he was a replacement for Keitel. It feels like he was kind of channeling him. I don't really see the Keitel here. My understanding is that Keitel just walked off. Or is, is that right? Or did, did Kubrick depose him? No, he actually walked off just because doing 100 takes of the same little thing is just too much. That plus I think he had something else he was supposed to be working on. I'm not sure what took him away, but it was kind of like Jennifer Jason Lee, where it's like, I can't be on this film for 19 months and just be at your beck and call the whole time. I'm sorry. I also think that Keitel was probably upset that in this era where he was showing his dick in the movie all the time, you know, because he did it like four or five times that Kubrick didn't want that kind of shot. So he was just like, what? I can't show you my dick? Really? Uh, this is the perfect opportunity. There is an orgy. That's right. Why can't I show you my dick? Anyway, I completely killed it. Go ahead, guys. Sidney Pollock, you know, he's obviously mostly a director, and then he'd turn up in these occasional roles. I mean, I think he's great in the Woody Allen film Husbands and Wives as well, which is another kind of New York married drama of the same decade. Uh, I don't think Woody did 100 takes of every scene, but um, Pollock's good in that too. I, mean, I don't know what it is about him as an actor. He has a kind of likability, but, you know, when he plays characters with sometimes sinister, perhaps sinister motivations or duplicitous motivations. Uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it really is good casting. Um, and in this one, I mean, he's kind of inherently likable, but when we learn about this character, we kind of do get a glimpse at something pretty sinister. Well, he's very, very paternal in this. And he's very much the, the dad to Bill. Yeah, you're not ready for this yet, son. You know, you don't make enough money. You're not, you know, to the upper echelon like I am. Go sit at the kids' table. I'm the adult in this relationship. Do you know who was there? Do you know who was there? I'm not going to tell you who was there, but there were some people there. And believe me, if I told you, you wouldn't sleep well, I think is one of the lines that he has. So this is getting to what Matt was saying, that Jeffrey Epstein kind of thing. It's like, oh, I'm connected to people that can you know, make or break you for breakfast is no big deal for them. By the way, yeah, I love him in Husbands and Wives. Talk about a movie that makes you uncomfortable. Oof. That's one that you can't, I mean, unless you're crazy glutton for punishment, it's not like I'm watching that one on multiple times ever. Thank you. Is there some significance in the fact that Kubrick decided to bring in a director as an actor in this role uh, to replace Keitel? Um I don't know if there was a reason why he was chosen particularly. I do know that it was actually Pollock that turned Kubrick on to Cruz because of the work in, and I think actually it might have been a little bit circular. I think that Kubrick might have brought him, brought Cruz to Pollock's attention 
before he cast him in the firm. And then it was Pollock talking because he and Kubrick were friends as much as Kubrick had friends. And he was really talking up Cruz to uh, Kubrick before Eyes Wide Shut, because I know there's a lot of discussion about casting and Kubrick really wanted to have a married couple as the Bill and Alice characters. So I think that it all worked out well when it came to Cruz and Kidman for this. My initial perception of the film when I saw it in the 90s was I kind of felt that if there was anything that ruined the film, it was the performances of Cruz and particularly Kidman. I never have been a big fan of either of them. Uh, this time around, it sat a bit easier with me, their performances. Uh, there are some moments in Nicole Kidman, Kidman's performance that, uh, for me, don't work. Like her little hysterical laughing fit and stuff seems kind of way over the top. Uh, anyone want to defend Nicole Kidman here? Maybe this is just by virtue of my first wife, but there's aspects of that whole, oh, but you're not jealous thing that felt like my first wife, that felt like something that I had been through in a relationship before. And I think the way that she handled it was quite good because I don't even think I don't even think the character knows exactly what she wants in those scenes. So there's part of me that feels like she's kind of feeling the edges and trying to poke him to get a reaction because she feels I, I think she feels a rather disconnected place from from her husband and it's like i think she even says it at one point i just wanted to hurt you i wanted to laugh at you you know i wanted to make you feel pain i wanted to make you feel something and the fact that he's like no i'm not jealous you're my wife what like why would i get jealous i know i'm gonna come home to you i know you're gonna be here you know and i'm glad that other men want to fuck you because that means said this on the first step in the first episode that we did that like for some men raises the stakes of the woman that they're with. It's like, oh, well, you know, look at my car. Look how nice my car is. Of course you want my car. That makes me feel better because you want my car. You know, I mean, it's this kind of consumerist aspect of, of relationships that I think they're really talking about. You know, it's like, no, she's a fully formed person. She's not a couch. You know, it's like, you just don't buy this thing and put it in your house and leave it, you know? And I think that, She's she's coming from this place if she doesn't even really quite know how to articulate it very well. And of course, it's going to come out kind of sideways and weird. For me, I, I thought she did a really nice job with it. Can't really find a bad performance in here. As a matter of fact, the performance that I really enjoy, and I want to see more of this guy, and sadly, I haven't sought him out, is the guy who runs the costume shop. I love him. I'm going to butcher his name because I know he's a Serbian actor and director, another director. But there's like three directors in this film. It's Ray Shabedge. I mean, he's he's phenomenal. I'm like, I could watch that guy do that scene all day. That's another thing that gets cut out of the fan edit, though. I mean, hardly anything's left of his character and that whole... And to me, that was another really weird thing to cut out of the movie because that is sort of a glimpse at something much more sinister going on than anything, you know, at this uh, so-called orgy, really. That's there for a specific reason. And it's also just kind of macabrely funny too so i i don't quite understand the justification for cutting all that stuff out i have to say if you like his performance him in snatch he's really good in that as boris the blade and oddly enough he and Cruz would go on to work together i think the next year with mission impossible 2 he's the doctor who comes up with the the virus or the cure for the virus i can't remember 
does a lot of great work. He's, he's a terrific actor. I have never seen his his directing work, but for sure as an actor, he's great. Yeah, and I've seen those pieces. But he also falls into, and and I have a friend of mine who's who's a Russian immigrant, and I go, you ever notice Russians and Eastern Europeans always get the real? We still have that in America, don't we? Having casting, you know, sinister Eastern Europeans. So. And and like like you were saying, Matt, he's he's really the darkest. He's really the most sinister because at first it seems like oh he's he's really upset about this, and then he comes back the next day and it's like oh no, understand they've been handled. It's it's okay. So you get the feeling that he's like prostituting his teenage daughter to people. I think it's in the in in the Kolker and Abrams book. Uh, they speculate that uh, Kubrick borrowed. The idea from uh, another Nabokov novel, Laughter in the Dark. Uh, there's some little incident that takes place in that. A great novel, by the way. So he kind of pushed that into this adaptation of uh, dream novel. I was really glad, too, from that book. I had never realized that it was Kate Blanchett who does the voice of the woman at the party. And I always knew that the voice was familiar, but I could never place it. So now when I hear it now, I'm just like, oh, yeah, she's totally doing that, what is it, Galadriel or whatever from Lord of the Rings, that kind of more throaty version of the Kate Blanchett voice. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. So that was nice that she shows up in voice only. It's an odd choice, though, because they needed to dub an actress who didn't have a convincing American accent, that's my understanding. And then they hire an Australian to do it. But don't you know that you guys are the new Americans? Come on. Yeah, yeah. So we hear. I remember the first time I saw the film and I was like, God, he's, he's so weird. You know, he's so weird in here. And now I love it because it just seems like he plays with him. It's Alan Cumming, you know, and Alan Cumming just as the desk clerk. The first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, he's trying to pick him up. You know, I had this feeling that it's like, oh, it's like, oh, how are you? You know, and it's like, would you like to go on a date with me? And I think that it's, it's a combination of that. And also, I think he knows his character knows what's up. But he's also toying with him, you know, with Alan Cumming also being an out bisexual man. I think that for him, probably fun to play on that. And between that and as you were talking about, Mike, with the uh, frat boys, there's always been this discussion of of Tom Cruise being closeted or things like that. And the fact that there's that and there's the frat boy scene, it seems like he wasn't willing, you know, he was willing to have that in there and not go, you know, can we not do that? Can we really not have anything that references anything like that? Because I really don't want anything like that in the film. But it seems that, um, you know, they, they allowed him to play with that. But Alan Cumming, I mean, I, I love him in all kinds of things. I mean, we, we had, we did Titus on the show and I love him in his role in there. So. But the fan edit makes a really strange omission in that scene, which, again, kind of like screws up the continuity because uh, in, in the 99 cut, Dr. Bill shows his medical license card as he does several times throughout the movie. Don't worry, I'm a doctor, which is actually how Alan Cummings learns, Cummings learns how his, that his name is Bill. The fan edit just slices that bit out of the scene. So then when at the end of the scene, Alan Cummings says, Oh, anytime, Bill. It makes no sense. How does he know his name is Bill? It's another one of those strange decisions, really, for me. The 
defense of that is, quote, I was personally okay with this because it gave me the briefest of chills to think that the desk clerk was aware of who Bill was already and anticipated him coming around. Incidentally, I feel this furthers the omnipresence of an elite secret society and ratchets the tension of us watching Bill's dive deeper into this mystery. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. As psychologists would say, that's rationalization. Is that what you're saying? I've been reading a lot of Roberto Bolaño lately. He kind of takes to a greater extreme, something I sort of detect in Eyes Wide Shut, this idea that you're sort of on the periphery of some conspiracy, but because of the decision of who the protagonist is, we never really see the entirety of it, When and much is unresolved. Bolaño, he's got a book uh, called Monsieur Pain or Mr. Bread, it's set in Paris in the, uh, in the 30s. It's about the death of César Vallejo, poet. But uh, yeah, you got a, you have a character who keeps getting glimpses of something very sinister going on, but you never quite figure it out. I don't think the Kubrick film is quite as extreme as that because uh, it doesn't quite remain as unresolved. Well, one thing that I would like him to have maybe delved into a little bit more and i know he was always very hesitant to he was hesitant but he then he would play with the idea of judaism and this whole idea of who's jewish and who's not in this movie in this book who's of that you know we're talking about social strata and the this whole you know it's vienna 19 what 191920 when this comes out and it's just like yeah it's kind of a big deal and it's about to become a bigger deal let's say in the next few years here so this idea of like this big christmas party and all of these christmas lights and all of this christian slash pagan imagery that's going on at ziegler's and then Bill, who's ostensibly playing a Jewish person, or is, his character is supposed to be Jewish, maybe that would have been an interesting thing, too, to talk about how these Christians are kind of keeping these Jewish people out of their social settings. I just saw the use of the Christmas imagery as a way to ladle on the domesticity. Christmas, in America at least, is the most domestic holiday of them all, next to Thanksgiving. And we don't put up lights and stuff for Thanksgiving, <laughs> things like that. It's not, not a big deal. I mean, it's the one day thing and you eat a big meal. You don't hollow out a turkey and put a light bulb in their head. You know, the whole question of domesticity and then obviously everything around, you know, the virgin birth and sexuality and family and all of those things Christmas represents. And also Christmas moving from in the early colonial period here you know, Christmas wasn't celebrated because the Puritans who came over said, no, we don't celebrate Christmas and all of that. And then Christmas used to be a, it, it used to be almost like Halloween. Like if you go back and you read histories, it was the working class that would show up at rich people's homes and demand things from them. Yeah. <laughs> Christmas. And there were these loud parades and there was all of this stuff. And all of that got watered down and said, okay, fine, you know, let's give them something that they can do at home. And then, of course, as you were saying, all there's all this Yule and Northern European mythology is stapled on top of that. So, or Jesus is stapled to that. So whatever. But it's 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 this mishmash, but but for me, I didn't see it so much through the lens of the, you know, the the Jewish Christian divide as much as I saw Christmas as just reinforcing domesticity. 
that even when you're in the apartment with with Domino, the this next worker who picks her up on picks him up on the street, she has a Christmas tree and all that. But the one thing that she isn't is domestic. You know, her she's got too many dishes that aren't you know taken care of. That was the maid's day off, as she say, and all that stuff. So so it's this thing again where it's like, yeah, the domesticity keeps playing in the background, and I think it's a way for him to to remind us of that. What I've read of uh, Frederick Raphael's experience of working on the script for this was, I mean, he seemed very keen to retain and find ways to adapt from the novel the very fact that this is a, a book written by a Jewish writer in Vienna. It's about, there is a context of anti-Semitism, um, and Kubrick seemed to want to strip that out. And he relocates the story to New York in the 90s, and he kind of removes that aspect of uh of the story which is is kind of fascinating and uh i mean there are other ways i think this story doesn't quite translate out of the context of austro-hungary in the at the turn of the century where i think the novel set uh to 90s new york and it's just curious kubrick was so it seemed very resistant to bringing that element of the novel into his adaptation I'm trying to think back over his work, and I don't really ever think, unlike the man who adapted another project that he didn't get to do, AI, Spielberg, who obviously has a lot of you know Jewish-related material within his work, I mean, specifically, I don't think Kubrick ever to look at it as heritage or identity in that way. It, it seems that it was just sort of, yeah, it is what, yeah, I was raised that way, but you know, it doesn't seem like he makes a big deal about it throughout his work. I can't really think of too many times where it comes up. Well, he was working on the Aryan papers for years. That's another one of his projects that never came to fruition, kind of like AI. But I'm not sure, again, how much he would have identified or just kind of like made that about him being Jewish. And yeah, so much of, to me, Spielberg was just like, no, no. I'm practically a wasp and for a long, long time, you know, just like, look at this, look at this domesticity and, and Christian values inside of ET and all these things. And it took, took a long time for us to get to the point where it's like, okay, now we can finally do Schindler's list. And maybe that has to do with the eras of their ages. I'm not familiar off the top of my head when Kubrick's family came to the States, but they may have been part of that more of assimilation wave where it's like, need to be Americans. We're going to, you know, be this way. And that Spielberg being after the Holocaust, there was definitely this thing of never again. And we're embracing our identity and we're embracing, you know, that aspect of ourselves because we're not going to allow that to take place again. So, so maybe that's where that tension is where, because I'm trying to think of other Jewish filmmakers who are Kubrick's age, you know, and generation. And there's some deal with, with those questions, but, but it seems like it becomes like for, for the post-World War II generation, it seems much more prevalent, at least in American filmmakers. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Robert P. Kolker and Nathan Abrams, authors of Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick and the making of his final film. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via 
patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash projection booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real hard show. Bye-bye. Obviously, I want to ask you about your Eyes Wide Shut book, but I'm very curious. How do you gentlemen know each other? How did you first uh, start working together? We began corresponding about things Kubrickian. Mason invited me to keynote a conference back in 2015. Is that right? Uh, no, it was, it was long before then. You came here in 2017. I'd met you the year before in Leicester in 2016. In any rate, we met uh, and corresponded and talked a lot about working together. I had been pushing a book on Eyes Wide Shut with Oxford University Press, and it was a long process of convincing them to do it. Finally, when they agreed, I realized that I needed to do this with somebody else because it was such a big topic because Nathan has a very deep historical knowledge and is an excellent archivist, knows how to use the archives. And one of the selling points on the book was that it would use archival information. The Kubrick archives in London were still relatively new. And so Nathan and I decided to co-author it. So why Eyes Wide Shut? Why that one out of all of Kubrick's works? Because it was the most difficult film for me of all of Kubrick's films, film that on first viewing I liked the least, and I wanted to find out why, and I wanted to find out why it was growing on me every time I saw it, every time I taught it, every time I thought about it, every time I heard the Shostakovich jazz suite, it brought up these emotions from the film. So it was really important to get at what was going on and uh, why this was such an obviously important film. Nathan, what were your impressions of Eyes Wide Shut when you first saw it? It was one of only two movies that I, of Kubrick's movies that I saw in the cinema when they came out. Owing to my age, the first one was Full Metal Jacket. I think I just squeezed into. I remember going to the Finchley Lido in North London on the eve of the Jewish New Year. Random enough, one of my best friends from school. And so where I saw it and with whom I saw it remains in my memory. It's probably hard for me to recollect exactly what I recall of it, but I do remember the sequence from when Bill says Fidelio through to when the Jocelyn Pook cue ends. As one of the characters, a minor character says earlier in the film, it made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. I did think that was one of the most amazing sequences I'd ever seen, not in terms of you know the sound in particular. Um, and of course, in the UK, we saw it complete, not digitally. You know, I haven't even seen it move with the digitally blacked out images. I've only seen still images of that. So gobsmacking, <laughs> gobsmacking to a European that would happen. So yeah, um, I, I, I enjoyed it. it and, you know, I wasn't disappointed in the slightest. So, and my appreciation for it has deepened since. How did you two kind of decide what you were going to cover and then who's going to help out with what? 
basically we wrote together. Occasionally on the same file, we would collaborate. We divided it up roughly. I did a little bit on the screenplay and a little bit on the film history aspect. Nathan did some of the basic chronology, supplied a lot of the information from the, from the archives. So we kept sending drafts back and forth and wrote over them, wrote with them, and came out with a fairly uniform text. We have complementary kind of approaches in the sense that, well, I started off as a historian and Bob started off as a literary scholar. And I think we both bring those sensibilities, not to say that, that literary and Bob's not historical, but those sensibilities to the approach. I know Bob's talked about my archival research. I have the patience for it. I think Bob doesn't. And the proximity, the training in history, you know, allows me just to go through that stuff. And then Bob has an appreciation, not just from a literary, but I have to admit it, a greater knowledge of um, the filmic canon than I do. So those two come together. So we don't have to reinvent, you know, we don't have to master everything um, when it comes to Kubrick between Bob and I. I mean, obviously one couldn't, but, but we're able to then double up, as it were, bring two perspectives and, and in a set, you know, almost half the work for each of us. And I, I think it works very well. When we're not arguing over edit. I do appreciate that even though Eyes Wide Shut was from, what, 99, that it goes back so far into Kubrick's history and just that you really put all of these pins in when he might have turned that into a film at some point, but then it just seemed like it wasn't right all the way until his final film. It is the leitmotif of his creative life at every instant. Starting in the 1950s, he began thinking about filming Traun novella, the Arthur Schinsler novella that Eichwaldschut comes from. And every time he thought about it, it either beat him in terms of trying to reimagine it, although at almost every point he wanted to reimagine it in contemporary terms. At one point, Christiana, his wife, said she didn't want him to do it. They were too young in their marriage for this kind of probing work to be done. So year after year, decade after decade, Traum Novella came up and Traum Novella was put down until the 1990s when two of the big projects that he was working on, his Holocaust film, Arian Papers, and his science fiction film, AI, both of which came very close to production and for various reasons did not make the leap from pre-production into production, that he finally decided this was it. And in his old age, he made his film of the Schnitzel book. Nathan, what were the state of the archives when you got in there? They're fairly well-developed and extensive, although not, not there's more material that was deposited just as we completed the book about Eyes Wide Shut. So... You know, unfortunately, we can't say it's definitive, but it is probably the most complete account to date until someone <laughs> wants to add all the new material. But the archives, you know, they're, they're fairly straightforward to use. Everything's catalogued according to film. The interesting thing about being in the archive a lot is they kind of work with the researchers to help them because the person who catalogued it originally would put stuff by film according to how he saw it. And not in every case was one thing that was read. F you know, take a thing. Kubrick was interested in making a Holocaust movie. 
Okay, so he read on the Holocaust probably throughout his life. You might find a book he read in 1963 and say, oh, that's still there in papers because it's on the Holocaust. Okay, so, you know, the catalogue gives you one perspective. We might say, oh, actually, we can give you another perspective and we help the um, archive with that. It seems complete, but who knows? There could be more stuff back at the house as books. And the, the other point I wanted to make is it's not easy to just catalogue Kubrick's life into a series of films. Most people do do that. It's just easier to jump from one film to the next as if nothing happened in between or it all happened in a linear way. And um, as Bob sort of intimated, especially with um, Trauma Vella, but this happened with Super Toys in particular, he kept going back and forth to them and sometimes it would occupy the foreground and sometimes the background. So, you know, although the archive is categorized into his films for ease of access, and because most researchers are only interested in the films or in individual films, it doesn't really obscures the life that lay behind the films. You know, I suppose it depends how you want to see Kubrick. Is he a sum total of the movies that he made? Is he a sum total of the movies that he made and didn't make? Is there an alternative way to archive Kubrick? Would be a really interesting question approach for us. It would be, be beyond my remit. I've never studied that that part of it, and and just something I wanted to add to what to what Bob said. I mean, we we believe that Kubrick came across Trail Novella pretty much when he moved into making feature films around 1950, but that's by no means the accepted viewpoint. The general narrative is he he really started to work on it after 2001 and 68. You know, we're we're positing this as a theory, and and Kubrick's statements back up our theory. But there's an alternative narrative, as there is with lots of Kubrick stuff, fair to say. If you think about the Kubrick canon, many of the films are about, in one way or another, domesticity, about couples, usually couples in distress. So Trump novella infiltrates. It infiltrates Olegan, certainly. It infiltrates Barry Lyndon. It infiltrates The Shining. He, as I said, he kept looking keep keeps on wanting to make that film. And instead, until the mid-90s, it appears in different guises in the films that he does make. And it's such a difficult film for him to finally make. I think that was the big story at the time was just how long it took for it to finally, once they said, yes, this is going to be the next one, how long it took for it to actually come to fruition. At close to 70 years of age, with all of the backing that he needed from Warner Brothers, he was able to work in a way that no other filmmaker can work. And so on time, at his own leaf, Fisher's not the right word, at his own demand that everything be exactly the way it is, even if the way it is one time is different from the next time he looks at it and has to be done over again. There was no pressure to do it any faster. The only pressure was at long last to get it right. Well, then also, I don't know if this was pressure, but the idea of keeping your stars occupied for so long. Absolutely. And they were devoted. Tom Cruise in a recent interview said that he was in tears when it was over. And uh, both declared, both Kubrick and Cruise declared their love for each other. So it was a remarkable bonding, if you will of director and star. Were there any things while you were doing your research that surprised you about the film or about the making of it? Only that it is quieter than most Kubrick films. Kubrick had a theory 
that every film has to contain a certain number of what he called non-submersible units, being set pieces. Eyes Wide Shut, even with the orgy scene, has a much quieter set of non-submersible units. Everything is at a calm, dreamlike pace. It is, after all, a dream story. And I think that is something that really stands out for me, certainly as different from what his other films are. I mean, if you consider the previous film, if you consider Full Metal Jacket, which is full of sound and fury, Eyes Wide Shut is not. It's kind of uh, elegy, elegiac tone, a sense of sadness. Kubrick spent his life putting big things on big screens. I mean, not in every case. If you think about Lolita, probably more about intimacy than big things. Elements of Barry Lyndon are extraordinary intimate, but then they're you know, dispersed with big battle scenes. But Kubrick's remembered for, you know, Cutwork Orange, 2001, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket. These are big events put on big screens. And here now he's really probing the sort of intimacy of marriage, mundanity of marriage, the, bo- the boredom of everyday life. And um, he, how did he put it? The um, nudity in the sense of, um, you know, Nicole Kidman remembering that she needs to put the chicken in the refrigerator last thing at night. You know, there's always the bits of discovery that we like to make, which we didn't know before. I suppose they're surprises. You know, there's a note from Leon Vitali confirming that Victor Ziegler's character is Jewish. You know, I've suspected it, but there's there's a note for the dubbing trans dubists and translators that he's Jewish. There's also Kate Blanchett was the voice, the mysterious woman in the audience. I mean, these are little details. Do they change anything? I don't know. But you know, <laughs> when you're trying to do an invert study of a film, finding out these little details that this there was a person who was meant to play this role and didn't. And, that's the kind of stuff that I enjoyed coming across. Whether it changes our view of the film of Kubrick, I, I'm not going to suggest it does. But when you're deep into the weeds of looking at a film, you know, you use this hairdryer, not that hairdryer, suddenly it becomes fascinating. <laughs> and then you have to step back and go, well, who cares? Actually, quite a lot of people probably do. Yeah. This is one of the things that Bob and I have to uh, debate when we come to write. I want that in there. No. And then you step back and you're like, okay, you're right. Bob, you talked about how you were wrestling with the film over the years. And I'm curious, where are you at now with it after having immersed yourself in this for so long to write the book? It's become part of my unconscious, as have all of Kubrick's films and other films as well. But spending that much time allows a certain clarity when I look at it again or think about it again. And I can even see it now in other people's films. I recently watched the biopic of Diana Spencer, it's called, and the visual texture of the film comes out of Eyes Wide Shut, the way it was lit, the way the camera moved. So I'm beginning now to see this spread of Eyes Wide Shut, a film that when it first came out was not well received at all. But now, like all of Fubert's films, has grown and infiltrated my unconscious, and I think the unconscious of other filmmakers and other filmgoers. Prior to doing this book, I concerned myself with so much with the technical side of his movies, coming from a film history back, history background. You know, I was more interested in what we saw and how we can analyze that. But you know, as Bob just said there, I think it's Spencer, the movie you were talking about. You know how he achieved the look. How he put things together to recreate, you know, New York in London, 
those sorts of things. Prior to this book, I tended to focus, the bits I would focus on in the archive were screenplay and research, which obviously is quite a lot, but the actual production process itself probably occupied less of my attention other than for the odd clue. But we went through the uh, a lot of the production material and spoke to people. So just, you know, you appreciate just the level of detail and that, that went into conceiving and, and executing the film. How long did it take to actually put the book together? 2019 was the anniversary of the 20th anniversary of the movie's release. So we wanted to have the book out to coincide with that. I, we began it when I was finishing my last one. So I think we began it in 2017 because that book came out in 2018 and we were underway by then. It has to have been because we got it in for 2019 to be published later in the year. It coincided with the film's release exactly, but it came out round about then. So we must have got it in quite early. Yeah, a couple of years. What have you guys been up to recently? Are you still working together? Or I imagine you have your own books that are coming out now. We are indeed working together. We are writing a biography of Stanley Kubrick. And we've seen late draft coming along. Big job, but interesting stuff coming up. Bob should have referred to the um, other stuff he's done. There's a book over his left shoulder there that he's uh, published. You want to talk about that? And I can answer Mike's question after. My last book is on uh, American film 1950s. It's called Triumph Over Containment. Yes, lots of stuff on Nicholas Ray and Sam Fuller, Douglas Sirk, big chapter on science fiction film. It is very rich thing. I will be ordering that shortly. I co-edited a collection of essays on, well, actually co-edited several collections. Bob's contributed to some of them. One's the Bloomsbury Companion to Stanley Kubrick. I co-edited one on the New Wave, New Hollywood. Another one on Alien, or the Alien uh, franchise. Been working on a collection about Eyes Wide Shut that I hope, hope will come out this year. And, of course, articles. So I've recently published one on Kubrick's Jewesses, one on The Room, one on Kubrick and Yorgos Lanthimos, co-written with someone. Oh, I've just um, got an article forthcoming about Aryan Papers as well. I was so fascinated by the projects that didn't happen, sometimes even more than the ones that did. Well, that's the direction of travel, I think. A lot of Kubrick scholars now is to, you know, fill in the gaps. You know, if there's a 12-year gap between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, well, what was he doing? Doing nothing. And he was working variously on Tramavella, Aryan Papers, and AI, became called AI. But it was only one of those he ended up making. And so... So yeah, there's a lot of interest in the unmade work and the extent to which, I mean, there's, there's some debate, the extent to which it was a project he would have done. You know, we come across lots of names of, of, of projects, but one has to put them in different categories of this one he definitely would have wanted to do, this one he was kind of interested in, and this one he sort of was interested in for a week. But that's what we're trying to do in our biography is, as I said, you pick up most books about Kubrick as if you just went from fear and desire through to Killer's Kiss, I and mean, then Killer's Kiss, and it was all smooth. And in some cases, there was a smooth transition, you know, Killer's Kiss to the killing, and then the killing to Pars of Glory, and then Pars of Glory. There were innumerable projects, most famous of which that people have heard of, One-Eyed Jacks, before he got asked on to Spartacus. It's only three years, and it's easy just to overlook three years. When you're writing a biography, you're like, well, those three years are probably crucial to his career, and interesting, I think, Eric might have helped shape the director he became once he became a box office sort of established director with Spartacus. 
the other thing that makes it difficult, you know, he makes Fear and Desire in 51, finishes it by 51, but it doesn't get released till 53. So he's doing other things, obviously, between 51 and 53. But most books will just put Fear and Desire, here it is. <laughs> and then, you know, Kubrick's life didn't, isn't easily compartmentalized into the movies. There's lots of stuff going on in between, stuff that worked, stuff that didn't work, things he didn't get off the ground, mistakes he made. I think that's one of the interesting things is that we're just in showing that he didn't always get it right. We're not trying to detract from saying he's not a genius or anything. It's just to show that the path wasn't always smooth and, and, and in a linear direction of travel uphill, you know, uphill in the good sense with no obstacles along the way. Although some people might choose to read it that way if they want to, the, you know, by, by, by introducing the sort of bits where he, the snags or he got it wrong or things didn't work out or he made mistakes. Yeah, the early part of his life is fascinating because when he decided to read Look Magazine and go full-time into making movies, it was, as Nathan said, very staggered move. And he was living hand-to-mouth for a good while, even when he teamed up with James Harris, his producer, who fortunately had a lot of money and was able to sustain them still. They were busy trying to get projects off the ground, trying to make a commercial success. He was very interested in wanting to make a commercial success and didn't happen until Spartacus. I don't think Cooper ever fully felt confident and comfortable in, in his filmmaking. I think he, he, knew what, he knew he knew what he was doing, right, technically. Um, but, you know, particularly from, say, Dr. Strangelove onwards, you know, one of the things that's distinctive about Kubrick is he didn't repeat the genre twice, although some say he only ever did three genres. But let's take a broader view. You know, he, he, you know, he, he might have done war movies, but he didn't do the same war movie again. The elements overlap. But so he set himself a new challenge every time and he didn't always get the funding for his movies. So I think he set the bar high for himself rather than just, you know, you know how like in the Hollywood days, studio system days, you might make your name making a film noir science fiction kind of just stick to that you know what you're doing you can probably churn them out a bit and you probably see an element of that even in, in the other great directors the 20th century you know if we said scorsese for example and i think with kubrick he set himself a high bar with each film a new genre but then probably some new technical challenge not least because he wanted to embrace the latest technology coupled with the fact he wasn't always guaranteed that warner brothers from you know 71 onwards would green light the project you know, he didn't make things easy for himself, is what I'm trying to say. He could have done, but he didn't. You know, he could have repeated himself. And I don't, you know, how many people would be that upset? <laughs> Interesting question to ask. Oh, Cooper's gone and done this again. Yeah, but it's still better than 90% of what's out there. You know, Dr. Strangelove presented technical challenges. Certainly 2001 presented, you know, with read all the obituaries of Douglas Trumbull, who passed last week, set, you know, high technical challenges. And then he's done that and then switches to something different by 71 which, again, uses different technologies. And then 75, something completely different, um, which sets other new technical challenges. And then 1980, something different again that sets new technical. And then 87. So I think, you know, if you look from, you know, 62 onwards, once he's completed Lolita. But even then, there's different challenges on Spartacus and there's different challenges on, uh, on, on, on you know, technical challenges as well on Pars of Glory. So although we can look at the films and say he jumped from strength to strength in each film's, well, you know, people might disagree when we come to Barry Lyndon because they don't like Barry Lyndon. They might say that with his eyes wide shut because they don't like eyes wide shut. But 
it wasn't the smooth path between each film that I think the film books will tend to give you because they miss out the bits in between. And then one might say, well, that's the challenge of writing a book. Well, why do we know about Kubrick? Because of his movies. So let's do it when he wasn't making a movie. And you think, well, you've got to really like him to want to read those bits. But that's a biography. That'd be a hilarious biography if we just jumped over the movies, just those years in between. Well, in a sense, the bit where he made them, you know, that's the boring bit for him. You know, that's not the bit that he enjoyed the most. Working with actors is probably his least favorite part, the actual shooting. And it's tiring, especially as he got older. Exhausting. Especially the time, the hours he kept and then the hours he made his staff keep, uh, those who were working for him. But, you know, apart from Eyes Wide Shut and the other, you know, the shoots, you know, if we take the period of making a film, the research, development of it probably took, you know, took a long time. And if we could just skip over the bit where he's saying, take one, (laughs) I'm finished. But then editing, that's the bit he did like. But the difficult thing is whilst he's making a movie, he's also doing the other bits he likes. He's also starting on editing. He's thinking about the music. He's thinking about post-production. It's, again, not easy to break break Kubrick down into categories. He worked on this then, and he worked on this then. And and often the difficult bit we found was whilst he's finishing up another movie, he's already started on the other one. So the leader he begins thinking about before he's working on Spartacus. And he's working on Spartacus, on the leader, the whole way through Spartacus. But the books wouldn't necessarily tell you that yeah the interesting thing would be i suppose we have to come back and think about did that influence his adaption of spartacus in any way do you have a release date already pegged for uh, the kubrick bio probably 23 i can't wait to read it i loved what you guys did with eyes wide shut so i can't wait to read more it's challenging it is challenging and it's challenging in ways that i think other subjects for biographies don't offer i mean we have the access to the kubrick archive you have to infer from the life from an archive about making films. You know, and a lot of the biographies that have come out recently, you know, Bob and I have been reading these sort of avidly between us, have access to materials that we just don't have access to because they exist. And if, they might exist for Kubrick, but we don't have access to them. So there might be diaries, personal correspondence, you know, dare I say it, say the Philip Roth ones that, that came out a few years ago or the Sylvia Plath one that just came out. Red Comet, that they have access to materials we can only dream of. Kubrick's working method was the telephone and the most ephemeral ephemeral uh, medium you can take of because there are no records. And But he would talk for hours and hours on the telephone. So as Nathan says, we have to do a lot of inference where other biographers have diaries and other sources personal sources. We have the films, we have the interviews, which there are many more than people usually think. And we have the archival material. He fortunately had no transcript of his his phone calls. He otherwise didn't throw anything away. So there is material in the archives that go all the way back to the early 1950s. And this is a great resource. Write a biography of a person who's known for his films and people who know Kubrick and like who probably want to know how he made his films in one place in a reader-friendly fashion, taking into account the archival material and the latest scholarship. But at the same time, you then are like, these aren't, this isn't a making of, a series of making ofs, because that's not about him. So that's the, I think that's the tension core that we keep debating, to be fair to say, about how much do we discuss how he made each of the films? How much do we discuss the film itself 
with a word limit. If we didn't have a word limit, then we don't have a problem. We could we could do all of it. But to appeal to a general reader who's probably heard of Kubrick and also wants to learn something, and, and to the readers who do know him well but want to learn something new, you know, and that's, I suppose, the tension of any biography, but, you know, some of them are a thousand pages long, so there's less of an issue for them. Can't write a thousand, if you're not allowed to write a thousand pages, you've got to think, well, does everyone want to know that he was never found a Dolby stereo, didn't trust it, or is or aspect ratios, or is that or is that best left to the side? Because does that tell us about how the guy lived? But then we talk about how the guy lived. For people who are like, yes, well, we we know him because of his films. So it's this catch twenty two the whole time. A book which he liked, by the way. Talking about Dolby and aspect ratios. I mean, he was so into the technical aspects of things. I mean, the whole idea of you know, let's recreate these lenses so we can use candlelight on Barry Lyndon. You know, those. It was amazing that he was so technical and artistic and just such a sponge for information all at the same time. He loved to solve problems of all kind. And also, remember, I mean, he wants to know what the image looks like on the monitor, right? I mean, it's one of the reasons for not storyboarding, because that doesn't tell you how it's going to look. You can plan out and have a rough idea, and you can plan out in as much detail as you want. But the thing is, he, he wanted to know how it looked through the monitor, and only then would he know whether he had got it right. So a story that we relate in the Eyes Wide Shut book is he did all the research on the the costume design, all the research on the underwear that the participants in the orgy were going to wear and had them all dressed up, as the case is. And then once he went to shoot, he was like, no, no, this is all wrong. And, and the response was, Stanley, you chose that underwear. He's like, yeah, I know, but it's still all wrong. I want different underwear. So all that technical detail aspect ratios, you know, that, that doesn't matter. I don't think one needs to know any of that to enjoy his movies. Um, or to have a deeper appreciate, appreciation for the for the artist. What I think one should think about is how he all that detail on the service of the vision on the monitor, and only then would he know had it worked. Did Cruz get that right? Did he switch on that light right? No, it doesn't look right to me on that on the monitor. You know, the the stops aren't right on that shot. You know, that ceiling's two inches out. You know, all that. You know, and I suppose what's really interesting is that level of of attention, mastery of detail directed to composing the shot that the viewer would appreciate and enjoy. But at the end of the day, the viewer has to appreciate and enjoy it. And if they don't, then it's all a waste of time, right? And I think he would agree that. One of the things you find in these debates online is people seem to like this knowledge for its own sake. Oh, I know aspect ratios better than you. And I think he probably did, but only in the service of what he thought the viewer needed to see. And I think sometimes that gets lost in this. I don't know if Bob agrees, but you know, if you follow these debates online, sometimes I think that gets lost. It's, it's so, yes, it's interesting that she's interested in detail, and that tells us a lot about his character and personality. But it wasn't an end in itself. It wasn't just an end in itself. And it's the means by which we remember him, obviously, what he created, mastering that detail. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Large fun. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Eyes Wide Shut. And one thing that we haven't talked about is the music of the film. Of course, music very, very central to this, the whole idea of Fidelio being the password, Fidelio being, I think, the only opera that Beethoven did while he was living, and well, not that he's done a lot since he is dead, but, you know, you never know. There could be the hologram Beethoven that then creates the next big opera, because that's coming back. I at everything on that, Diamond Hands. That Shostakovich piece that opens the credits is, I mean, the jazz waltz is 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 beautiful and as you were saying you know vienna so of course there's a waltz 
you know, that, that I think is a little nod, which, you know, if you're a Kubrick fan, you go, ah, Waltz, right. 2001. So there's that kind of thing. And then there's the mirroring of music, you know, between the parties with that way, you know, between the party and the orgy. So we have, uh, also that, uh, Ligeti piano piece, which is like the two note piano piece, which I, I didn't realize at the time the film came out. So that composer was still alive. He was really elderly by that point. But uh, I just kind of assumed he was dead by that point. But uh, so Kubrick used his music in 2001 as well. I think he may have used a bit of his music in The Shining. He kept getting his music. I think he actually wound up in dispute with Kubrick after 2001 because Kubrick modified his music electronically. This piece does kind of feel perfect for this movie as it's very bold, but yeah, it contributes to the strange atmosphere the film has enormously. That piece that they played during the orgy is wonderful. And I'm trying to remember, is that the Jocelyn Pook who ended up doing some other pieces of music for this? That's the one thing that I really remembered from the very first time watching this film was hearing the chanting done backwards, which really adds a nice, obviously this is based on a book called dream novel in the English. So you're going to get dream imagery and dream feeling through this whole thing. And so this idea of the backwards chanting really throws you into that when you're in this very unreal orgy where like you said it feels like bill is walking through tableaus it doesn't feel like these people are it feels like he's just walking through these scenes he's not actually part of these so having that backwards music really adds to that dreamlike nature of it vaguely remember or maybe it's a false memory maybe this is in the book that that chanting was was it a is an Islamic prayer or is it a Hindu thing or something? There was some. I remember there was some sort of article where someone said, you know, how dare you use our religious music or something like that, and then distort it and and use it. And I vaguely remember hearing something like that. There was some sort of controversy around it after the film came out. Warner Brothers substituted uh, the original chant. Uh, replaced it with a slightly different one because of an outcry. That's my understanding. Was it from the Bhagavad Gita or something like that? Uh, it was a sort of sacred? I thought it was an Orthodox liturgy myself. I think it may have been a Hindu piece, but I, I can't remember offhand. It was so long ago. I just remember there was a story where, you know, somebody was, some group was upset at the use of how they did that. Well, maybe we're thinking of a slightly different, like slightly later in the, uh, in the sequence, I, I'm not sure exactly what they were referring to, but did anyone get kind of Lynch vibes from not only the, the the music, but also the kind of when you cut to Nick Nightingale playing those keyboards with the red curtains? I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of feel like we're in Club Silencio or something uh, for a moment here. Silencio, Fidelio, yeah, I can definitely see that. I must admit, those two films, which were released pretty close together, um kind of a nice double feature really the piece in the paper and, and i understand suspension of disbelief and also dream logic and things like that but as a former journalist if if this woman od'd and they would not have the story in the paper they would not be telling you her name that quickly and if you went into the hospital i seriously doubt they would pull her out and she would still be on the slab without in a bag you know like to me all of that seems very like unlikely you know, in that sort of stream of events. So, so that to me goes, 
No. I'm like, if this woman OD'd in a hotel, it would, you know, I mean, maybe today in the TMZ world, it would be like, oh, you know, this person's a notable person and they OD'd in this hotel and we would know about it on Twitter or something like that. But there would be no way to know that they had OD'd because toxicology reports wouldn't come out for, you know, a week or something like that. And then the police aren't going to tell you the person's name until their next of kin is contacted. And there's no way it would be in the paper the same day and all of these things. So, so that aspect, but that also, like you were talking about him going around and showing people his, his doctor's license. And this was the first time when I was rewatching it after watching, you know, obviously Argento films and, and Giallo films, it has that kind of slight Giallo vibe where it's like, I'm not an, I'm not a detective, but I'm going to play one because I have to go figure out what's going on. And, and obviously I can't go to the cops because the cops aren't going to help me. So it has a slight kind of Giallo-ish edge to it, I think. I agree. That's something that, that struck me looking at this again, too. Um, especially the use of the colors. I mean, it's it's it really pops in in the colors the way that uh, Giallo films do. So I I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if Kubrick was looking at that as an yet another influence on what he was doing. Yeah, I can totally see that. And it is interesting that this detective never unravels the case. You know, basically you get a confession from Ziegler. You know, oh yeah, that girl we we drugged her up so that you were thrown off the case basically and trying to scare you away. And Tom Cruise Bill never does anything. You know, he never really unravels it and says, Oh yeah, I'm gonna go to the papers and blow the whole lid off of this place. It's no, he just gets scared and goes home and then we find out maybe Alice is part of this. I mean, that mask on the pillow is still one of the best reveals for me. I just took it as he was so frightened to lose his his safety. He was so frightened to lose his wife, his domesticity, his career, because he obviously is of a lower status. So I just took it as there, there's a limit to how far I'm, I can go, because if I go any further, I'm going to destroy everything. And as for the mask, the explanation I've always made to myself was that um, he was out for a period or he was sleeping and maybe she found where he hid the stuff, you know, and for some reason he just grabbed the bag and went not thinking to look into it. Cause he figured out oh, nobody went through my stuff. That was her way of going. I know you did something without trying to confront him. I wanted to talk about the, the, the ending, the thing that I like about the ending, and this is, what I was saying again about this balance between the desire and the domesticity is, is that it's not, Oh, we need to make love. It's like, no, we need to fuck. And I also like that while he is very much about going, no, you're my wife. You're not going anywhere. I know you're always going to be here. He's the one who keeps saying to her forever. He's trying to get reassurance that everything is okay, that, that nothing has changed. Everything is going to be the same. And she's like, that, that scares me. No, let's not, let's not make those kind of promises. Let's, and then, and then when they were going through the toy store, the thing that I noticed is the kid also is like, the first thing that she looks at is, is the pram, you know, the, the, the baby carriage, you know? So again, this is another echo of Christmas domesticity, training young girls from, from a young age to, you know, that that's what you want. Even, you know, I mean, her other choices, like there's three, 
three toys that she looks at. One is the, is the baby carriage, the other is is the big teddy bear, and then the, the other is the ballerina. I, I really got the idea of the of again trying to layer on this domesticity question and going how do how, how do you navigate that? How do you balance? And as far as intentionality goes, because we know how laboriously Kubrick planned everything and how carefully uh, he made these movies. Uh, you can't just assume anything is there by chance. I don't think it is. I'll say about the 400 days of shooting is like, how do you spend 400 days shooting this movie? And uh, how do you spend 400 days shooting any movie? But 400 days shooting this movie, uh, I kind of wonder if Kubrick had by some miracle, you know, lived another 15, 20 years, was he ever going to make another film after this? Was the, the process becoming so prolonged and perfectionist to the point of obsession that it really wasn't viable? I don't know. I, I really feel like we're at an ed- end point of his career here. Um, he kind of pushed this method of making movies to its logical conclusion. So it really does feel to me like this film rounds out the career. Outside of that recasting that they had to do and things like that, I mean, there's no big effects. I mean, it's it's a drama and it's pretty low key. I mean, outside of the the, the two big party scenes, there's nothing really heavy. I think in some ways you could give this script to someone and say, here's a 16 millimeter camera and 30 grand, go shoot it. Like there's really, there's nothing in there that's going to, you know, oh God, the digital effects, you know, <laughs> oh, the explosion. Yeah. It's not like if you made a sweeted, sweeted version of this, that it would be very different at all. I could see Jack Black and Mos Def playing these characters. Did you read the, uh, the article by uh, Bill Jabiri about the the way they shot the orgy sequence, where they it's it was published a couple of years ago, and he's interviewed all the participants and the uh, actresses playing the prostitutes in the in the sequence were saying that they all had like serious knee problems because they had to continue, they had to do take after take after take and rehearsal, and they were wearing these four inch heels and. So they, the physical demands on the performers was extreme. The woman who played Mandy, I, I think it's her. She she had like some injury that was excruciating for you know because Kubrick just endlessly shot and shot and shot and did things over and over again. It's it's crazy how prolonged this production became. That kind of reminds me of, and I, I don't know, did you do The Abyss, Mike? No, we haven't ever talked about that one. There was a story in The Abyss where it's like, the, there's this scene where they're, you know, it's cold and it's metal and they're on this platform and all this. And just Cameron kept doing take it for take. And I think, I can't remember who the actress was, but she's like, we're not animals. Just got so just pissed off at like Cameron's perfectionism. And that's the thing is I think that sometimes we romanticize Kubrick's perfectionism a bit much that, you know, we look at the films and go, oh, you know, the films, oh my God, they're, they're amazing. Like it's such a great canon. But there's part of me that just wonders, like, like you were saying, like, what's the toll that that takes on people? You know, like, are there people who are in therapy now because they <laughs> had to deal with just this? So, I mean, physical therapy or, or emotional therapy, you know, because they've had to, oh God, it did go through the door a hundred times. And is take 100 going to be better than take 30. I mean, if it's just Harvey Keitel walking through a doorway, 
I don't know how feasible it was going to be for him to keep making films if this type of process was going to continue. I mean, I, I guess Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman must have had extraordinary patience. I was reading in the book, the Colker and uh, Abrams book, that when you actually tally up the money they missed out on making because they had to spend more than a year making this one. I mean, they they were making 20, 25, well, he was certainly making 25 million a movie at this time, and I guess she was making a lot too. So it took him tens of millions of dollars they forsake, they, they, they gave up on because of they clearly wanted to work with Kubrick more than anything. But uh, it's pretty extraordinary, really. Yeah, it sounds like they were just completely enamored with him. Just, oh my God. And they're some of the few people that showed up at his funeral. It's interesting because I was going through the the extras on the Blu-ray that I have. And to your point about the perfectionist bit, I think it's Jan Harlan says, well, you know, you spend these millions of dollars in pre-production to build the sets and all that stuff. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you do 30 takes of something if you wanted to? I mean, because that's the cheapest part of the whole process is, you know, the film and, and the time, you know, the time that you have there. And then... I remember his wife was like, well, to me, it feels like a film that only he could have made as an older man because you'd have these, you know, this bigger understanding. Like, like I said about myself, where like I watched this thing when I was 21 and I was like, I didn't, you know, I can't relate to this completely. There, there's things in here that I'll get probably later. So there's those kind of aspects that are in there. And then kind of looking at some of the extras on, on the DVD, it was just trying to think about. The interviews that they did, and of course, the, the press junket interviews that they did, and I haven't really seen any like updated interviews with them about that. Those those press junket interviews were done right after right after he died. So of course they're not gonna go, oh God, this is a fucking nightmare. Jesus Christ, you know, like speak ill of the dead. No. So it's like, you know, 20-something years on, it might be nice for a pair of them to go. Here was the real reality of working on that thing. This is this is how I presented it. And granted, it was an honor, but I think it would be interesting for them to go, it was a bit much. Like, like I think that all of us realized that they probably felt that way too, but maybe weren't going to say as much. It's either that or they were so catered to it, it didn't matter. You know, they were the aristocrats on the set, so they got whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, and there were certain things that were going on that would have derailed another production had it not shot for 19 months. That I think Kidman was sick for a while. I can't remember if if uh, Cruz was ill or obviously he didn't break his ankle on this one. There weren't the big stunts. Not jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> so he's not jumping from <laughs> building. Yeah, yeah, no jumping from building to building or anything. But and I think a lot of this almost well, obviously they didn't last for that much longer after this. So I don't know if this contributed to the end of their relationship. I mean, just being these characters for that long, I'm curious how that would affect your marriage. And that's why I think that last scene kind of has a little more resonance, like forever. Oh, don't say that. Nicole Kidman's not really in the movie that much either. I mean, she, she's had this long stretches of the film where she's not in it. And I guess, what was she doing? Waiting around to shoot, scenes uh must have been i mean i can imagine despite you know obviously a, a huge creative experience to work with someone like kubrick but uh the frustrations that would have come with that i think would have been pretty considerable well thank you so much guys for being part of this special episode before we go rob let the folks at home know what you've been up to since covid happened in the summer of 2020 i've gone back to school so i've i've finished 
a couple of different programs and I'm now starting a master's this summer in uh, nonprofit management. So I'm working on that after working on a graduate certificate in archival. So I'm doing that and I'm also working on a some special episodes of uh, the projection booth, kind of a side thing that I'm calling the lounge, a much more relaxed concept. It's going to be a three-parter and uh, we'll feature our good friend, Miss Heather Drain. So I'm looking forward to doing that and there'll be more information on that as, as we get closer. So, but that is what I've been up to. So I guess you'll be drinking more because I'll probably reference Bunuel again. So I just can't help it. Yeah. That's what I do, you know? But outside of that, no, everything's been really good. And like I said, thanks for having me on, Mike. And it's great to meet you, Matt. And it's always fun to talk to him. And Matthew, what's been keeping you busy? Well, I just worked on a bunch of commentary tracks for the uh, Australian Blu-ray uh, company Imprint. So I just, uh, a bunch have come out in the last few months. I did The Gambler, Dalton Trombo's Johnny Got His Gun, and uh, Across 110th Street. And there's a few more on their way. Uh, and I've also been teaching. I teach uh, film, online film courses. So presently teaching a course on the French New Wave. It's kind of what I do a lot of these days, uh, sort of something that I started about 18 months ago. So uh, yeah, small groups, lecture, class discussion, no homework except watching the movies, no finals. So everybody gets an A. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Oh, oh, oh.
Ученичество, порунка нового дома. 